Good afternoon uh, and welcome to the Great Hall of Sydney University. My name is Jeff Garrett. I'm the Chief Executive of the U.S. Studies Center at Sydney University, where I'm also a professor of political science. It's my great pleasure to be here with us, with you all this afternoon, uh, to hear a lecture by Peter Katzenstein from Cornell University. The lecture is being co-sponsored by the U.S. Studies Center and Sydney Ideas, a wonderful partner of the U.S. Studies Center. Uh, it's a real pleasure for me to be here this evening because Peter Katzenstein has inspired me for almost three decades. I didn't tell Peter this earlier, but I do remember seeing in the early 1980s the typescript of a book of his which was forthcoming, which then I spent about the next 15 years trying to understand and interpret <clears throat> and getting, getting some jobs on the back of Peter's great ideas, I have to say, over the time. Um, this evening, uh, Professor Katzenstein is going to be introduced by the Vice-Chancellor and Principal of the University of Sydney, Dr. Michael Spence. But before I welcome Michael to the stage, I wanted just to read out a couple of important housekeeping announcements about this evening's event. Uh, Peter's lecture will run for approximately 45 minutes, which will be followed by a moderated question and answer period. Uh, for people who want to ask questions, there'll be a microphone uh, positioned in the center of the auditorium. If you could please go to the microphone, uh, ask your questions, and then listen to Peter's answers, that would be appreciated. Uh, after the lecture, Professor Katzenstein will be signing copies of one of his latest books at the Glee Book stall in the back of the auditorium. I don't know whether the book will show up on, uh, on the cameras or that you can see, but it's uh, related to the topic of tonight's lecture by Professor Katzenstein entitled Civilizations in World Politics, Plural and Pluralist Perspectives. Uh, tonight's lecture is also being filmed by ABC Television, Big Ideas, the ABC's multi-platform talks program. You can watch Big Ideas on ABC One on Tuesdays and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. or online at any time at abc.net.au slash bigideas. Uh, it's my pleasure now to welcome to the stage the Vice-Chancellor and Principal of the University of Sydney, Dr. Michael Spence. Michael. The University of Sydney has long been committed to seeing ideas discussed not only here in the quadrangle but more broadly in the city. And it is a tremendous um, privilege to be able to cooperate with the U.S. Study Centre in the hosting of this lecture this evening. And it is my great pleasure to introduce Professor Peter J. Katzenstein, who's the Walter S. Carpenter Junior Professor of International Studies at Cornell University. He's also the current president of the American Political Science Association, the world's leading professional organization for the study of political science that serves over 15,000 members in 80 countries. Member of both the American Academy of Arts and Science and the American Philosophical Society, Professor Katzenstein is one of the world's most influential political scientists, making seminal contributions to the study of politics, 
both within countries and also amongst them. Since joining the Cornell Governance Department in 1973, Katzenstein has chaired more than 100 PhD theses. He's received Cornell's Distinguished Teaching Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching and was one of, made one of Cornell University's Stephen H. Weiss Presidential Fellows for Service to the University in 2004. Professor Katzenstein is the author and editor of more than 30 books and monographs and over 100 articles and book chapters. Whoever said that good researchers couldn't be good teachers or good teachers good researchers? His 1985 book, Small States in World Markets, was awarded the American Political Science Association's highest honour, the Woodrow Wilson Prize for the best book published that year. One of his edited volumes, The Culture of National Security, was selected by Choice Magazine as one of the top ten books in international relations in 1997. Professor Katzenstein has been a fellow at the Stanford Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, the Russell Sage Foundation in New York, the Woodrow Wilson Center in, in Washington, D.C. He is currently a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. His current research interests focus on the politics of civilizational states, on questions of public diplomacy, law, religion, and popular culture, on the role of anti-imperial sentiments, particularly anti-Americanism, on regionalism in world politics and German politics. And so it gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Katzenstein to offer a critique entitled, Why the Clash of Civilizations is Wrong. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael and Jeff, for this gracious introduction. Uh, if it took Jeff 15 years to understand my ideas, he's setting the bar either very low or very high. You'll decide at the end of this lecture. Uh, and then I want to just say apologies for my sniffles at the beginning of the lecture. I arrived here on an airplane trip, which made me sick. So. This lecture inquires into two existential positions that concern Robert Frost in, his, in this excerpt from his poem, Mending Walls. Here's Frost. Before I built a wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. And here's Frost's neighbor, as described in the same poem. He will not go behind his father's saying. And he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. I would like to explore in this lecture what these two positions entail for our understanding of civilization and world politics. I will start with an exposition of the underlying theory of civilizational politics before illustrating my central point with specific reference to China and America and ending this lecture with a brief recapitulation and conclusion. Civilizations are based on urban forms of life and the division of labor by which urban elites extract resources from peasants. There are two basic views on civilization. I argue here for a pluralist view that, that makes civilizations embedded in a global ecumene. This ecumene describes a universal system of knowledge and practices that differs from a competitive international state system reinforcing civilizational unity. 
At the center of civilizational complexes, we typically find religious traditions which at times intermingle with literary ones. An alternative view of civilizations holds that they are unitary cultural programs organized hierarchically around uncontested core values that yield unambiguous criteria for judging good conduct. This view was a European invention of the 18th century, and in the 19th century, it was enshrined in the doctrine of one standard of civilization. That standard was grounded in race, ethnic affiliation, religion, and a firm belief in the superiority of European civilization over all others. The distinction between civilized and uncivilized peoples is not specific to the European past. It enjoys broad support today among many conservative supporters of Huntington's thesis of The Clash of Civilizations, a book that was translated into 39 languages. It is also held by many liberals who are committed to improving the rule of law and global standards of good governance. Furthermore, the unitary argument is widely used by non-Europeans in their analysis of civilizational politics. Everywhere and at all times, barbarians have knocked on the doors of civilizations. Civilizations, I argue here, are pluralist. Islam, for example, does not cohere around religious fundamentalist values. Instead, just like China and America, Islam experiences conflicts over contested truth, reflecting its internal pluralism and its external context. Since it is a vast subject, let me offer here only a few illustrations from this case, leaving aside similar evidence easily adduced for Europe, India, Japan, Africa, and Russia. Islam is instructive because it illustrates a territorially loosely integrated and decentralized civilizational complex. Furthermore, Islam's stateless polity is often thought to be antagonistic to both China and America. The first major scholar of civilizations was the 15th century Islamic scholar Ibn Khaldun, who sought to adjudicate among the claims of different strands of Islam, which existed then as they exist today. In the spirit of Khaldun, the founder of modern Islamic studies in the United States, Marshall Hodgson, has counted the opening line in, uh, in Kipling's famous Ballad of East and West, Oh, East is East, and West is West, and never the twain shall meet. According to Hodgson, Islam belongs neither to East nor West. A truly global civilization, is as Islam is a bridge between both. In the past, the Indian Ocean was for this global civilization the center for the blending of different Islamic traditions, including Persian, Southeast Asian, Arabian, Ottoman, and South Asian. Today, this rich legacy continues undiminished. Hyphenated Islam, as in the existence of a rich polyglot Afro-Islam, a vigorous debate over Euro-Islam, and a pragmatic Islam in Southeast and Central Asia contrast with an internally deeply divided Islam in the Middle East and in North Africa. Unitary conceptions assume that civilizations are culturally cohesive and that their collective identities are unchanging. Because of both the recent and the distant history of the West, this is implausible for both questions of security and political economy. Recently, after World War II, the most determined enemy of the West, Germany, 
was firmly integrated into a coalition of Western civilized democracies that were seeking to stem the tide of Eastern uncivilized autocracies. Furthermore, in the second half of the 20th century, despite the importance of Anglo-American models, varieties of capitalist democracies have remained a distinctive feature of the West. In contrast to this pluralist view, Samuel Huntington's clash of civilization restates the old unitary thesis for our times. His became arguably the most influential book published on international relations since the end of the Cold War. For Huntington, civilizations are coherent, consensual, invariant, and equipped with a state-like capacity to act. Huntington succeeded brilliantly in his objective of providing a new paradigm for looking at world politics after the end of the Cold War. His correct anticipation of 9-11 gave the book a claim to validity that helps account for its continued relevance. Less noticed in public than in academic discourse is the fact that Huntington greatly overstates his case. Numerous analyses have established beyond any reasonable doubt that clashes occur primarily within rather than between civilizations. Furthermore, the book's appeal has not been undermined by the failure of the second of its main claims. Since the end of the Cold War, the relations between the cynic and American civilizations are summarized best by terms such as encounter or engagement rather than clash. <coughs> Excuse me. In rethinking civilizational analysis, however, it would be a big mistake to focus only on Huntington's writing. Huntington insisted on a unitary conception of civilizations but accepted multiple standards of proper conduct in a world of numerous civilizations. Liberals follow an inverse logic. Unlike Huntington, they are often more willing to acknowledge the existence of diverse cultural programs in a given civilization. And unlike Huntington, they have a difficult time <clears throat> letting go of the notion of a single standard of good international and intercivilizational conduct. This is illustrated by vigorous and extended debates over failing states, standards of good governance, property rights, and transparent markets. On all of these issues, and many others, liberal arguments often proceed from the unquestioned assumption of the existence of a single standard of good conduct. In liberal American and European public discourse, the West thus is widely referred to in the singular, a universal, substantive form of perfectibility that is integrating all parts of the world based on the growth of Western reason. A very similar anti-Western counter-discourse, also steeped in Western reasoning, exists in Asia. The voices proclaiming the dawn of Asia's civilizational primacy may shift from yesterday's Japan to today's China and tomorrow's India, but these voices are growing louder. Like Orientalism, Occidentalism characterizes East and West in the singular. I argue here that the internal pluralism of civilizations is reinforced by a larger context in which they are embedded. That context is not the international system or global markets, frequently deployed concepts that suffer from excessive sparseness and abstraction. It is instead a global ecumene that expresses not a common standard, but a loose sense of shared values entailing often contradictory notions of diversity 
in a common humanity. This loose sense of shared values centers on the material and psychological well-being of all humans. Well-being and the rights of all humans are no longer the prerogative or product of any one civilization or or constellation of civilizations or political structures. Instead, technology serving human well-being and norms of human rights are deterritorialized processes that have taken on a life of their own and provide the script for all civilizations and all polities. This ecumeny does not specify the political route towards implementation. It does offer a script, often not adhered to, that provides everywhere today the basis for political authority and legitimacy. All polities claim to serve the well-being of individuals, and all individuals are acknowledged to have inherent rights. The existence of these processes enhances the pluralism that inheres in civilizations. It undercuts both the imperialism of imposing single standards and the relativism of accepting all political practices. Recognition of the importance of this global ecumeny is central to the transient self-critique that William McNeil wrote in his own brilliant book, of, of his own brilliant book, The Rise of the West, more than a quarter of a century after he had completed it and six years before the publication of Huntington's book. For McNeil, civilizations are internally variegated, loosely coupled, elite-centered social systems that are integrated in a commonly shared global context. He argues that his earlier path-breaking book was wrong-headed. It was based on the faulty assumption of the existence of civilizations conceived as separate groupings whose interaction was the main engine of world history. Instead, McNeil insists now that an adequate account must give proper consideration to the broader context in which all civilizations are now embedded. Since civilizations are internally differentiated, they transplant selectively. And since they are loosely integrated, they generate debates and contestations that tend to make them salient to others. What historically was true for South Asia and the Islamic world, under the impact of modern communications technologies, is even more true for all contemporary, civil, all contemporary civilizations. A global ecumene pluralizes civilizations within a loose sense of shared values. Such a pluralist conceptualization of civilization is attuned to the emergence of new forces, cultural and political, that reflects on the richness of the politically available repertoires of different civilizations. Analysis of pluralist civilizations stresses the balance of human practices. Shifting balances are producing and reproducing behavioral and symbolic boundaries within and between civilizations that are more or less closely tied to political power. Islamicization offers ready-made examples. Viewed globally and historically, Islamicization centered on Indonesia, an important way station between Canton, South Asia, and the Arab Peninsula. Indonesia's Islamicization was peaceful. The work of Sufi missionaries from Gujarat and Bengal, whose outlook was quite compatible with Hinduism. This focus on Indonesia, furthermore, serves as a useful reminder that today Arabs make up only 15% of the world's total Muslim population, with South and Southeast Asia accounting for more than half of the world's total. 
Indonesia has the world's largest Muslim population, and Islam acts as a strong unifying force for a fragmented archipelago. Although almost 90% of Indonesians are Muslim, Indonesia is not an Islamic state, and Islam is not the national faith. Contemporary media coverage suggests that Islamization centers on the violence perpetrated by tiny sects of radicals of the world's 1.2 billion Muslims. Many academics and members of the general public appreciate, however, that Islamization encompasses also other practices, such as the annual Hajj and long-term migration, a fully developed consumption culture, including food, dress, and pop culture, and transnational communication channels, radio in the era of Pan-Arabism in the 1950s and 1960s, Al Jazeera satellite TV, and websites such as Islam Online Today. Islamization is dynamic and open-ended, and it defies easy summary under simplified labels. This pluralist and ecumenical view differs starkly from Samuel Huntington's unitary conception of civilization. His civilizations are operating in an international system rather than a global ecumene. Hence, Huntington articulates as a policy maxim the commonalities rule, pointing as an urgent need to something that exists already in abundance, the search for values, institutions, and practices that are shared across civilizations. In his view, civilizations balance power rather than reflecting open-ended processes and a broad range of human practices. Neglecting all the evidence of a restless, pluralist, and at times seething West, Huntington's analysis sees the West as a civilizationally reactive status quo power that reluctantly engages in the upsurge of revisionist non-Western civilizations. Rather than focusing exclusively on actors such as states, polities, or empires that are embedded in civilizational complexes, in Huntington's analysis, civilizations themselves become actors. And implausibly, he measures civilizational power solely by material capabilities, such as population, GNP, and military expenditures. His clash of civilizations thus looks remarkably similar to a clash of large states or empires. Though lacking in conceptual richness and empirical support, unitary conceptions of civilizations are very popular outside of academia. How do we account for their broad appeal? Primordiality is a simplifying crystallization of social consciousness around nodes such as civilization, gender, and race. What matters is not so much the category in and of itself, but the political act of reification, the public exposure it receives, and the fact that it is believed in. It is a testimony to Huntington's political acumen and ability to frame to have framed our understanding of world politics in terms of binary and totalistic entities such as the West and the rest, even though such entities have never existed in the past, do not exist in the present, and will never exist in the future. This mental map makes sense only if one adheres to a unified conception of civilizations and is then willing to generalize broadly. Huntington understood perfectly well that primordiality is political, and he acknowledged very candidly that his book was very much a political project. Yet primordiality is subject to empirical analysis. It has greater appeal in some situations than in others. Simplifications have intuitive appeal in moments of great uncertainty. 
when the world has lost its familiar structure, and when we are groping to find new beginnings in the old debris. The category of the West served that function both after the end of World War II, as Patrick Jackson has demonstrated, and after the end of the Cold War, as reflected in Huntington's civilizational thesis. Furthermore, simplifications are intuitively plausible and politically almost unavoidable in moments of extreme threat or war. Uncertainty, threat, or war focuses the mind on what divides us from our enemies and what unites us with our friends. I've argued here that we should think of civilizations in the plural rather than in unitary terms. Civilizations are embedded in a global context of knowledge and practice that influences them without robbing them of their distinctiveness. They represent what Schmuel Eisenstadt and others have called multiple modernities, which activate different cultural programs under new conditions. The emergence, for example, of Judeo-Christian and Afro-Islamic patterns of identity and practice in world politics points to the combinatorial richness of civilizational politics. Civilizations normally appeal to and are salient for others when they display diversity in debates over different but related social visions and political purposes. But in exceptional periods, such as times of great uncertainty, threat, or war, political and intellectual entrepreneurs everywhere can create primordial constructions that make us see the world in unitary terms. Let me turn to the second part of the lecture. Civilizations are pluralist. For purpose of illustrations, I'm using here the unexceptional American and Chinese cases of plural and pluralist civilizational politics. The recent and distant history of the West invalidates the claim that it has been culturally cohesive with an unchanging collective identity. Recently, after World War II, the most determined enemy of the West, Germany, was firmly integrated into a coalition of Western civilized democracies. Furthermore, in the second half of the 20th century, despite the importance of the Anglo-American model, these capitalist varieties, which I mentioned, have persisted. In the distant past, medieval Europe, according to Karl Deutsch, featured six separate civilizational strands, monastic Christianity around the Mediterranean, Latin Christendom in Western and Central Europe, and Byzantium in Southeastern Europe. These three major civilizations were connected by the Afro-Eurasian trade networks of, of Islam, which for centuries took hold on the Iberian Peninsula, as well as elements of two other trading civilizations, Jews and Vikings. The West is undeniably plural. What is true of the West is true of America. Roger Smith has reworked an older scholarly perspective on dueling traditions, such as Jeffersonianism and Madisonianism, that preceded an important book by Louis Hortz. In so doing, he has developed the multiple tradition perspective now closely associated with his name. Addressing, among others, both Hortz's and Huntington's single tradition theories, Smith observes in his analysis that American political development was marked not only by egalitarian values of liberal democracy, but also by inegalitarian and illiberal ideas that yielded substantial and serious clashes over America's reigning ideas and practices. At its heart, Smith argues, the multiple tradition thesis holds that not any one tradition, but a more complex pattern of apparently inconsistent combinations of traditions has shaped American history. Specifically, 
Hartz's liberal tradition argument overlooks America's Republican and racial traditions. For Hartz, conflict in America occurs within the liberal tradition, for example, between majority rule and minority rights, or between democratic and property rights. He thus overlooks America's strong Republican tradition. The rejection of monarchism led to the support of popular republicanism informed by Rome and the ideals of civic virtue. This Republican tradition had strong effects on Jeffersonian and Jacksonian conceptions of politics and a distinctive form of American communitarianism. Furthermore, Hartz's liberal tradition argument has very little to say about the issue of race. In semi-feudal Latin America, slaves were placed at the very bottom of the social hierarchy, but they were not robbed of their humanity. In America's non-feudal culture, slaves were denied of their humanity and made pieces of property. Liberal slavery was thus more cruel and vicious than feudal slavery. But Hartz went on to argue that once humanity was granted, liberalism was more generous since it did not have within its own intellectual tradition arguments that could stop the demand for equality. The elimination of slavery was necessary to establish the hegemony of liberalism in Hartz's argument. Yet Hartz slighted the importance of race in American politics, a fact he reportedly regretted subsequently. American political and legal history reflect fundamental disagreements as American governors and judges frequently deviated from liberal doctrine by appealing to republicanism on the one hand and to an ethnocultural Americanism on the other. Republicanism is strengthened by social homogeneity and small size, patriotism and community. Ethnocultural Americanism is grounded in nativist and racial identities. Lockean liberalism and Anglo-Protestant creed were particular and exclusive, not general and inclusive. Blacks and Native Americans specifically were explicitly excluded for many decades. Among Democrats in the 19th century, Jacksonianism elaborated racist ideas. Among Republicans, specific ethnic and religious attributes became constitutive of America as a redeemer nation. By the late 19th century, both parties favored immigration restrictions as social Darwinism replaced older racist theories. America's multiple political traditions, liberal, Republican, and race-based, were reflected in the exclusion of women from the franchise and in anti-Chinese immigration legislation. Because of race, gender, and national origin, Smith argues, United States laws declared the majority of the world's population to be ineligible for full citizenship for over 80% of American history. For the same reason, at least half of the domestic adult population was ineligible for full citizenship for about two-thirds of American history. Instead of the primacy of any single tradition, America has evolved multiple political traditions. Let me shift to China. What is true of America is true also of China. China does not cohere around uncontested Confucian or Asian values. Instead, just like America, China experiences conflicts over contested truths reflecting its internal pluralism and external context. Chinese civilization is pluralist. The different strands of cynic civilization have emerged from numerous reinventions of Confucianism in China 
and the various forms through which they grafted themselves onto the sociocultural system of China's neighbors. Although they never fully abandoned their indigenous and Buddhist traditions, Korea, Vietnam, and Japan, in different ways and for different reasons, adopted or emulated characteristic Chinese state practices. Historically, writes Wang Gongwu, sinicization was not associated with coercion and the need to dominate. Rather, it was a matter of China's neighbors emulating Chinese practices that they found to be effective in exercising domestic control and in managing their foreign affairs, especially with China. For example, the calendar, education systems, and civil service exams all required of Confucianism and Chinese culture. Although Korea was most directly exposed to China, it was not China, but Korean neo-Confucians who imposed Chinese standards and practices. Vietnam underwent a process of self-Confucianization to avoid Chinese occupation. And even though Japan was less exposed to Chinese influences than were these two countries, it too imported Tang Dynasty norms and practices. Chinese Confucianism is as plastic and contested as American liberalism. Discarded as an imperial institution since the late 19th century and hollowed out as a political ideology, the relevance of various incarnations of new Confucianism is now seen to lie in its humanism. Widely thought to have been a major factor for many of China's ills during the last two centuries, in recent years the Chinese government has vigorously revived Confucianism. This ideology operates on the basis of hierarchical, reciprocal, and morally-based values. The political qualities that supposedly flow from these values, wisdom, morality, generosity, obligation to respect the interests of others, are now extolled as assets, not as liabilities. The ethical and religious concerns of Confucian humanism remain relevant in seeking to address some of contemporary China's most pressing problems. Two-way Ming's conceptualization is largely congruent with the writing of Shmuel Eisenstadt and the concept of multiple tradition. For two, cultural China focuses on the meaning of being Chinese. It is not a geopolitical, linguistic, or ethnic concept. Instead, cultural China is defined by transnational relationships in greater China and the fluid borders separating civilization from barbarism. Cultural China emerges from the dialogues within and between these different Chinese worlds and with the erstwhile peripheries of the Chinese world now thrust in the unaccustomed role of helping to civilize China. And outside of China, but in the Sinocentric sphere of cultural influence, contested and contestable traditions of Confucianism can also be found in Japan, Korea, and Vietnam. In short, in its various incarnations, Confucianism is not an essential attribute of Chineseness rooted in an empire, polity, or modern nation-state. It is instead a cultural resource mobilized primarily among the periphery of transnational Chinese networks. Furthermore, inside mainland China, the tradition of Confucianism is complemented by and competing with alternative traditions of Taoism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, popular religion, atheism, and secularism. Perhaps even more striking is the regional revival of multiple cultural traditions in China. China is divided in five ways, east, west, north, south, and center. 
relying on overly schematic and simplifying terms for purposes of this lecture, I would argue that the cosmopolitanism and economic dynamism of China's coastal areas and the patriotism and relative economic backwardness of China's heartland constitute multiple traditions that provide the fodder for vibrant debates and disagreements inside China's civilization. Other civilizations have a very large stake in these debates. Numerous dramatic transformations in contemporary China evoke the image of a very large man ruling over in a very small bathtub. In doing so, that man must create some very big waves and cannot help but make a mess on the bathroom floor, and that mess may affect the neighbors. I've chosen American and Chinese civilizations as two examples for the thesis that civilizations are plural and pluralist, and that in this central respect, China, America, and Islam are perfectly normal and unexceptional civilizations. In a book published this past summer under the title Civilizations in World Politics, which you can look at at the end of the hall, I've made the analogous case for all of the world's other major civilizations. Concepts like East and West have never been able to describe accurately our past. They do not describe accurately our present, and they will never describe accurately our future. These categories create a make-believe world in which intellectuals who are trying to gain fame and fortune can wage their intellectual battles and in which politicians who attempt to conquer or consolidate power can mislead their publics into unnecessary risky and political adventures or military confrontations. Let me conclude. Civilization is not a condition but a process created by human practices. Those who think of themselves as civilized were at an earlier time uncivilized and are always at risk of becoming uncivilized in the future. These practices sum in the aggregate to civilization of processes such as Americanization, Islamicization, or Sinicization. They are producing and reproducing behavior and symbolic boundaries. In today's world, these processes are nested in one global civilization of modernity. We can trace trans-civilizational engagements and inter-civilizational encounters in a variety of different practices. In their internal and external relations, civilizations are marked by debate and disagreements. Contestation generates different processes and outcomes. One such outcome, cultural imperialism, describes the unilateral imposition of the norms and practices of one civilization upon local norms and practices that it seeks to displace or destroy. A second outcome describes the wholesale adoption by local actors of the format, but not the content, of imported cultural products and practices. Finally, a third outcome, and the one that is most typical in the relations among major civilizations, describes a world of hybridization in which local norms and practices are altered by selectively appropriating imported practices. This is the give and take that defines civilizational processes, the exchange of cultural material, information, ideas, values, norms, and identities. It highlights shifting balances of practices rather than balances of power within and between different civilizations. I've argued here for a view that stresses the pluralism and the plurality of a world of civilizations, a world into which Islam, China, and America fit comfortably as very normal and unexceptional cases. Far from being unique, 
both China and America are comparable to all other major civilizations. Our world of civilizations is for the most part characterized by inter-civilizational encounters and trans-civilizational engagements, and only very rarely by civilizational clashes. The last two decades and the relations between cynic and American civilizations provide ample documentation for this proposition. I thus have argued in these remarks that common preconceptions shared alike by conservatives and liberals in both East and West are seriously misguided. Rather than help us build a better and more diverse world in which all civilizations can teach and all can learn and in a common context, these preconceptions risk building a world of fear and walls in which civilizations are reduced to delivering monologues of the one right way, yielding not engagement and encounters, but clashes. The opening line of Kipling's 1899 poem, The Ballad of East and West, suggests that the two shall never meet. Kipling was wrong. Civilizations are most similar not in their cultural coherence, isolation, or tendency towards clash, but in their pluralist differences, in their plurality, and in their encounters and engagements. We should resist the temptation of excessive simplification and the fallacy of misplaced polarities entailed in a binary distinction between East and West. Instead, we should embrace the intellectual and political opportunities of what one scholar has called contaminated cosmopolitanism. This concept captures nicely the messy core occurrence of sameness and difference that is the defining trait of a world of plural and pluralist civilizations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, We're at a Sydney Ideas lecture, which is being filmed by the ABC's Big Ideas. I think it's always been the case for Peter Katzenstein that he's a man of big ideas, but big ideas anchored in and big ideas that are to inform the world we live in, the give and take between the work of the university and what's going on beyond its walls. I know that's a university that Michael Spence wants to lead. I'm very happy to be the head of the U.S. Studies Center, which also tries to provide a bridge between the university and the world outside. I think we've been uh, privileged this evening to hear a tour de force performance from one of the world's great political scientists, Peter Katzenstein. Professor Katzenstein has graciously agreed to take some questions from the floor. I see that the microphone is now positioned in the middle of the auditorium. If anyone would like to ask a question, please form a nice orderly line behind the mic, and I would uh, remind questioners of two simple observations. The first one is that in all things, brevity is the soul of wit. The second thing is that it's very easy to turn a long statement into a question by saying, what do you think at the end? Please try to resist that temptation. The first question. Uh, Thank you, Professor. As an American who uh, is starting his Ph.D. at Sydney University um, and just left Washington, D.C., it's hard to miss, in my opinion, the fact that President Obama and uh, what he's bringing to the United States and the world seems to fit well into 
the model that you're presenting as a pluralist president. Um, is that, do you think that's a fair statement? And, and what would you, what do you think he's bringing to um, the model that you're talking about in terms of a multinational pluralist society that seems to be emerging? Peter, would you like to do your Phil Donahue and be out in the Yeah, crowd? yeah, I'd rather okay. have Mike and I think you get an A. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, his Cairo speech, his biography in his Cairo speech, right? Yes. I mean, the Cairo speech is a very articulate statement of the position which I outlined. I read books, he is a politician, there's a difference, but the message is the same. Okay. And if you think, part of the argument, you know, I'm not saying, oh, Sam Huntington is totally wrong. He's not. You know, the construction of primordiality is a political process. Huntington was writing the book saying, I want to change the way you look at the world. And actually, he didn't change it. I mean, that's the way we have looked at the world for 150 years. It was the old way of looking at the world updated, right? But it was very political. And, and you must, and he was writing the book not as a scholar, but as a public intellectual, I believe. Uh, so, and he writes with great clarity. He is a, one of the great, great scholars, you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, doesn't live any longer. So, um, but the, the, the notion that, uh, that Obama represents and which lives is, in fact, I think, much closer to the truth. Right? But Obama himself does know that primordiality exists as a political process and category. I mean, he's experiencing it right now while he's in office. Right? Uh, he thought he could change the climate. Well, it turns out that this climate in American domestic politics uh, is hard to change. And Obama is waging a more vicious war against al-Qaeda than George W. Bush ever did. If you want to count out the number of children and women killed in Pakistan and Afghanistan, the list among Obama is much longer. Okay. So, and his acceptance of the Nobel Prize, in fact, it's not an Obama doctrine, but it does talk to this problem of the, a world in which evil cannot be thought away and that he as a political leader has a responsibility. And that part of the lecture I want to underline, you know, talks to that point. Uh, primordiality is a, is a fact of life, and as a polit politician or political scientist, you have to take account of it. And the other one, which I'm sure Obama would not be so happy to hear, is, you know, the lecture makes a strong argument against cosmopolitan liberalism. You know, my friends all say, oh, great, you don't like hunting. Wow, that's terrific. Uh, they don't like at all the critique of cosmopolitan liberalism, and I feel nervous about it. I haven't thought it through. Okay. But it strikes me that the logic of one standard, whether from the right or whether from the left, is not in tune with what's happening politically. Okay. Professor yes, sir. Um, you're making the case for, cos uh, for pluralist uh, cultures or civilizations. How do such civilizations deal with mo monistic civilizations? Like I'm thinking here of, Mar uh, of Marxists, Marxist cultures, Mao in particular, who's, you know, we have the right view, Hitler, um, some Islam. Islam is modernising and maybe modernising very fast. And, of course, Christian fundamentalists as well. So 
I didn't quite understand what you said. How does it deal with what? How does uh, how do such pluralist civilizations deal with its, these people? I mean, I suppose you can say we have dialogue, but what if they say, "Well, we're not talking to you. Right. We have the truth." Right. Okay. Uh, civilization doesn't do anything. It's not an actor. Civilization is a social context in which actors move. These actors could be states. They could be empires. They could be polities, as the European Union. They could be non-governmental actors, right? So the civilizations don't do anything. Huntington equates civilization with actorhood. I think this is wrong. Okay. So how do states, empires, and uh, polities deal with evil people? They do it the way they've always done it. They fight with them. They make bargains, whatever. The role of civilizations is not to act. The role of civilization analytically is to tell you who you are and through that process of identifying yourself, I'm part of the West, but I'm also from Sydney, I'm also, well, Australia is also part of the West. Well, when Howard is in power, it's in part of the West. When Howard is in power, it's part of Asia, right? These things move around, right? It will then tell you what's in your interest. And it turns out that most people don't care about this. Elites care about it. It's an elite-centered social context. So the, what you do politically about evil in the world will be the function of political actors, not of civilizations. Civilizations are important as a way of guiding political actors what's in their interest. It's not the only guide, but it's an important one. Peter, while we're waiting for the next question, could I ask you to elaborate uh, on... Where are you, Jeff? I hear your I'm right behind you. I've stolen your podium. or In fact, I'm everywhere, Peter. I don't know how it is. Um, 1910, Germany and Britain. Different civilizations, plural civilizations, changing balance of power in the world resulted in a horrific 30 years for the world system. China and the U.S., Plural civilizations, big change in the global balance of power. Do you have uh, optimistic or pessimistic expectations about those frictions in a world of plural and pluralist civilizations? Yeah. Well, you 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 framed it as expectations, not as predictions, which I'm very happy. Uh, I don't believe that we are in the business of predicting. Uh, uh, for that, the world is much too complex. Uh, I mean, what Britain and Germany um, illustrated in 1910 was the variety within the West, right? Uh, what China and uh, um, America illustrate is, I believe, the variety within the West. I'm doing right now two projects, one on the West, which includes Australia, and Canada, and New Zealand, and Mexico, and the United States, and Britain. And the other one on the East, which is focusing on Anglo-China. Uh, it turns out that in the 19th century already, the notion of a cynic world was, was penetrated by a large dose of Anglo elements. Uh, and by now, you know, in that education revolution which, which is occurring, in, in China and for the overseas Chinese, you know, the Anglo component is rising greatly. Uh, so it's not inconceivable that within a generation or so, you would say the common context 
is as important as the cynic or quote-unquote Western traditions. Both elements are there, the common context and the cynic and the American specificity, right? But the things are shifting, right? And uh, if I said, what's my expectation? I wouldn't look to this process, which is longer term. I would look to pretty conventional political analysis, what's in the interest of the regime. And there, I'm pretty optimistic. I'm, I'm by temperament optimistic. But, you know, China, I think uh, it seems to me that certainly on the Chinese side, they're a very realistic assessment of who they are and what they have to do. Uh, and the Americans, I think, um, that may be one of the benefits of the fiscal crisis of the American state is they're being pulled back. Uh, the notion that this was the new Rome, I think that notion has evaporated, and nobody really believes it. Thank you. Next question. Um, yes, I'd, I'd just like to ask you something quite specific. Um, I mean, I agreed with a lot of what you had to say about the reductive quality of the Huntington thesis, the tendency to oversimplification, the sort of suppression of dissenting elements and so on, and I mean, I, I accept that. But isn't it also true that one of the strengths of the Huntington thesis relates to issues of power and politics and ways in which certain forms of ideological control gain a kind of hegemony. And I'm thinking, to take your China example, of the issues at the moment around Google um, and the, the, you know, the issues around censorship, the, the way in which the Obama administration has, as it were, pinned its own sort of liberal ideology, if you want to call it that, in, in a kind of clash of... Um, you know, what the, what the Obama, the United States wants to sort of um, suggest is a kind of clash of freedom against censorship. Now, of course, from the Chinese point of view, it's an issue about, you know, internal regulation, the laws of their own country. I don't at all disagree with your thesis that I'm sure there's a lot of dissent within China and lots of different sort of regional variations. But if one thinks about the way in which certain kind of power blocks exercise control, wouldn't that be an argument in support of the Huntington thesis? Well, you know, if the title of the book was The Clash of Big States, yeah, sure. But then people wouldn't have bought it. The, for him, civilizations are the actors. And this is, in, in civilizations, the power of civilizations is measured. The indicators are the same as indicators for state power. GDP, population, material capabilities. This makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, if you look at scholarship on civilizations, what do they talk about is literary, that is secular literature, and religion as modes of thinking of who you are. Right? So I perfectly accept the notion that you know, civilizations are not, civilizational analysis is not going to help you understand the conflict over Google. For that, you need international relations. And one of the parts of the analysis which I didn't talk about is how do you analyze the embedding of states or empires or polities into this civilizational complex? I left that out, right? But Huntington slips. In fact, you know, he writes about civilization in the first three chapters, and after that, it's all the old stuff about real, real politique. You know, that, and even my undergraduate classes wouldn't be treated too well by my teaching assistants, right? Because it's incoherent intellectually. So as for Google, yeah, this is a state saying we are not buying into the notion of information liberalism, right? We will control it because 
Sovereignty is here for us. It's not to be defined away by anybody. Seems to me a perfectly reasonable, coherent political position. And Google will now make its money someplace else. And the Chinese information retrieval system will have lack of competitiveness. And eventually they're going to work it out. Seems to me a perfectly normal conflict. Interesting to watch. Next question. Uh, if, so if civilizations aren't actors um, and they're pluralist and pluralizing, uh, then why bother with the concept at all? I mean, why isn't the logical conclusion of your thesis and your research that we should do away with civilizational right. discourse in general? Uh, and given that the sort of literary cultural material you, you mentioned would be incredibly complex and difficult to gather up into large-scale uh, schema anyway. So why bother with civilizations to begin with? Well, first of all, because it's large and complex. Thank you. Okay? I like that. Uh, but the second one is, if that is true, then why bother about markets? That is, why bother about anything except the geostrategy and geopolitics doctrine of the 19th century? Because markets embed states, but Dick Cheney says they don't matter. Okay? So if the social context doesn't matter, clearly the economic context wouldn't matter. And then, of course, the ecological context wouldn't matter either. Then you have a world of raw, naked, materialist power politics. Now, I know a country pretty well which believed that that was how the world worked. Okay? I'm from Germany. It didn't work out too well for the Germans. Okay? They fought that 30 years war from 1914 to 1945, and it wasn't a winning, winning war. It was a losing war because they misunderstood how reality works. So I think you will have to take into account the economic, ecological, and social context in order to understand how states behave. That seems to me almost ineluctable. So the fact that it's complex, I grant, is fun for a professor. But strip away the complexity and just say, I will look at the social context, social ideological context in which states work. And I think looking at Australia, which can move, depending on which party is in power, from being a suburb of Washington, D.C., to being close to Beijing or Tokyo within a month, it's quite clear that this matters. Peter, could I just uh, ask you, I can't resist asking you to go in the other direction. Benjamin Netanyahu, I think, said a couple of days ago when asked about his new settlements in East Jerusalem, he said... New settlements in East Jerusalem, Jews have been building in East Jerusalem for 3,000 years. Isn't, isn't Huntington right that a struggle such as that between the Israelis and the Palestinians is quote-unquote civilizational? Yeah, I mean, I think there are other cases you can find you know, based on the research of Brubaker and the Balkans places in the world where the sedimentation of historical conflicts is so deep that, in fact, these binaries become natural. People think that's just the way it is. Uh, and as I said, the political primordiality tells us that you can't say, oh, this never happens. It does happen. But is it the typical thing? So if you think, you know, of the literature on which hunting was building, which was Toynbee, right, in Spengler, well, clash is one of 24 categories in Toynbee's taxonomy. It's not the only category. There are lots of other things happening between civilizations. And I think it's looking at a 
prominent example is privileging and biasing our assessment of what's normal and what's abnormal. Uh, and I use the Chinese-American example very much. He said there are two clashes looming between East and West. One is Islam, 9-11. The other one is with China. Okay. In the parlance of social science, that's being half of the time right. 0.5. Now, the social sciences are like the natural sciences, but 0.5 is nothing to be proud of. Okay. It's like flipping a coin. Yes, the next question. If you are given a chance to advise the Obama government, how would you fine-tune America's China policy? If I was given a chance, I would certainly not accept it. (laughs) I know exactly what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And fighting inside a bureaucracy for foreign policy, I would be terrible at. So I would certainly not accept it. Um, I think, you know, I'd say for about 30 years since the late 1970s, America has followed a very successful grand strategy towards China under both Republican and Democratic uh, uh, administrations, nonpartisan, which is a policy of engagement. Now, you you will get under both administrations the opposition always saying, ah, but your expectations are too high. They are not doing X, Y, and Z. Okay? But in fact, it's been remarkably effective. And I think there's more continuity between Bush and Obama on this domain than almost any other foreign policy. So I talked to Tom Christensen quite a lot, who was in the State Department and a former colleague at Cornell. Um, And they're all saying Obama is doing it just right. Yeah, here maybe a footnote, there maybe a footnote. But basically, it's a foreign policy of continuity. Will this stay? This, I think, is much more questionable because you've got a leadership succession in both countries. And it's unavoidable that the Democrats will turn more protectionist. Okay. Uh, that's just for political reasons pre-programmed. And it's unavoidable that in China, as you get a leadership changeover, you will get more infighting and conflict. So I think the next two years will be pretty rocky. But the long-term strategy is appreciated by both sides. And the fact that Taiwan is now taking off the front burner helps it greatly. I think we have time for one more question. Is there another question that someone would like to ask in the audience? No one wants to bite on any Islam issues. Ah, the Vice Chancellor wants to follow his Dean of Arts. To I the do, microphone. and I want to take up Duncan's question in a slightly different way, which is to say the question is really given the tendency towards primordialism of that term civilization, is the term itself helpful? There are other ways of talking about the kinds of pluralities, words like culture, like um, political or economic system. What is it that civilization adds conceptually and analytically? to merely the metrics of those other um, of those other ideas. You mean what the concept of civilization adds? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a very good question. I get asked this a lot because particular people on the political left don't like the term. It comes with all the connotations of bad things in life. Okay. Uh, and I say, all right, you don't like the term. What about East and West? They don't like that either. I say, okay, what do you work on? And they give me the subject. I said, let's have a bet. I'll count 
how much on the front page of your newspaper of choice you will find your term and I'll find East and West. And it turns out nobody wants to take the bet because this is how people normally organize it, including public intellectuals, professors who are very sophisticated. We need these mental simplifying devices in order to organize a world in which information overload is just with us all the time. Right? And we, of course, use them unreflectively. And if we use them unreflectively, somebody will come along and tell us that's really how it is. It's not just a shortcut. That is the reality. And that is what Huntington did brilliantly. But this is what political leaders do in enormous numbers in all parts of the world. East, west, north, south. I don't care. That's why I think, you know, the, the bottom line of the message is to say conservatives are wrong, liberals are wrong, people in the west are wrong, and people in the east are wrong. They are burying what actually is going on because the politics of interest make the simplifications which we use as a metaphor, gives them an opening to make us think this is natural, but it isn't. Thank you. Could I just follow up? But, Peter, doesn't it make sense if you're in China and it's a polyglot country and it has all of these differences, doesn't it make sense for the Chinese leadership to talk about China as a civilization, something that's been there for thousands of years, the West's only been there for 200 years, don't tell us that we're newly on the block, we've been there before. If there are big incentives for political leaders to use that kind of language... Isn't it a real part of the world? This is the, the converse of Michael's point. It's a real part of the world that's not going away. It's not isolated to Israelis and Palestinians. It's a common metaphor to bind the kind of disparate plural societies you're talking about together. Yeah, I think this is right. I mean, I gave, you know, I talked about a thousand people in China in a period of two days last November. You know, you were there at the Civilization Forum. I gave four lectures in the day before to various university audiences. Each about the audience was this large or larger in each of them. Uh, I, people were very interested in the, in the concept, sinicization, civilization, and I found that extremely intriguing. I didn't get a single question which was not Huntingtonian. This is very interesting, but you're obviously you're wrong. I had an interview at CCTV9, okay, which is sort of the, whatever, ABC2, which you have here, right? Sort of public television in English for sort of the cosmopolitan set. Uh, well, that person let me talk for about, he didn't know what I was arguing. He talked for about three minutes and said, I think you owe the Chinese people an apology. And I said, beg your pardon? Because you clearly don't understand anything about China. We are united, we have always been united, and you are wrong. Okay? That is, China is deeply penetrated by Huntingtonian analysis. Not because of Huntington, although he sold a lot of books there. No, because this is the construction of Han supremacy in the last multinational empire which still exists. China will not look like this 50 years from now. So open, just the way America can't conquer Iraq, China cannot sit on top of northwest China and Tibet for the last 100 years. Everything in history tells us that these empires will decline. It's the last one. And, of course, the leadership knows it. And it has no answer other than the technocratic management of the economy. Well, once you're in a capitalist economy, all you can know is there are the seven fat years and then there are the seven poor years. They have the seven fat years right now. That's going to come to an end. And then I'd like to see that system. 
I think in the spirit of going once, going twice, in a room that on a beautiful autumn day must be about 85 degrees Fahrenheit, Peter, um, it's a testament to the quality of your ideas that so many people have stayed to listen to you, both in your prepared remarks and in your reactions to questions, big, small, provocative, irritating. I don't know how you would view them all. Uh, so on behalf of everyone in the audience, on behalf of ABC Big Ideas, uh, Sydney Ideas at the University of Sydney and the U.S. Study Centre. I, I hope everyone will join me again in thanking Peter Katzenstein for a really wonderful presentation this afternoon. Thanks, Peter. Thank you.